You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. See if you can figure out what this sound is. Did you, do you know what that was? Um... Uh, Mm, do it again. I can't do it again. No. <laughs> that was me opening up a can of worms because we're going to talk about the Patterson-Gimlin film. Ooh. I know. <laughs> oh, did you prepare that beforehand? Yeah, really, it's just a cold Diet Coke. <laughs> wow. Not worms. I'm disappointed. It's a metaphor. Okay, let's move on. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Hello and welcome to episode number two of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stoles now, we talk about monsters and science and skepticism. So we had a couple of questions on the uh, the board from listeners about whether or not we wanted to talk about news items in the realm of monsters. And at first I thought, well... You know, that's not such a great idea because I, I want the show to be timeless. I like that idea of timeless, that I- any episode can be just picked up and listened to without really being dated by the material inside it. Of course, <laughs> in cryptozoology, it's uh, hard uh, to be anything but timeless since apparently even really old stuff is considered fresh evidence. I, I did want to talk about a monster in the news, if you guys would indulge me for a minute. Um I don't know if you heard today, a very famous monster uh, passed away today. Gidget, the uh, Taco Bell dog, died today at the age of 15. The the Taco Bell dog. Right. As a famous monster, I, I just thought it would be uh, uh, right for us to take a moment and mention that, that that's one monster that has died. Now, uh, not, 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 not to interrupt, by, by, by famous monster, you mean what? <laughs> He's a, a famous monster. I mean, you know. We're, t- we're talking the bug-eyed little wiener dog thing? No, he's uh, well. Yeah. I I think he's a Chihuahua, but I mean, I mean, I he, well, I mean, you watch Monster Quest, right? Yeah. So I mean, so he's a monster. I mean, I mean, if you watch Monster Quest, you know they've 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 done episodes on octopus and squid, 
and uh, bears and mm-hmm. and dogs and um and coyotes and, and, and coyotes and and didn't you weren't you actually in an episode of Monster Quest uh, or more I, than I one was. right I yeah was that, in, I was in several stuff. yes. And I believe that was about a, an, an animal. Didn't that animal turn out to be a, a, a canid instead of a chupacabra? Uh, it, it did, uh, although so, at first glance I, I thought it was the Taco Bell dog. Well, see, there you go. So my, my point being that, you know, if Monster Quest says a chupacabra is really a, a, a Mexican slash Texan dog, then wouldn't that qualify the Taco Bell dog to be a chupacabra? Hmm. Uh, exactly. Right. Exactly. See. Leave a rational. Right. So I think. Uh, yeah. So again, we mourn the death of this famous monster, Gidget, the Taco Bell Chupacabra slash dog. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Karen, did you uh, get your document ready to talk to us about the introduction to the Patterson Gimlin film? I certainly did. The Patterson Gimlin film for dummies. Excellent. Oh, yes. yes. Well, I and, think- and and for the listeners. <laughs> okay, so this is a bit of a, an overview of uh, the the Patterson Gimlin film, which is also known as the Patterson film. It's a short movie that allegedly captures a close encounter with Bigfoot. So the event occurred in October of 1967 and was recorded by one Roger Patterson and also witnessed by one Robert Gimlin. At almost a minute in duration, the film reveals an unidentified creature in motion, a tall, large, pursuit bipedal animal that appears to be a primate. The film was recorded at Bluff Creek, which is a remote rural area in the Six Rivers National Forest, near the tiny town of Willow Creek in Humboldt County, Northern California. Bluff Creek was already a supposed hotspot of Bigfoot activity, Even before the film was shot, the area was known for Bigfoot sightings dating back to the 1950s. There's a large collection of anecdotal evidence to attest to sightings in the area before 1967, and also plaster casts of a set of tracks uh, claimed to be footprints of Bigfoot, but the biggest claim was yet to be made. Roger Patterson was a horse breeder and former rodeo or rodeo rider, if you prefer, uh, while Robert Gimlin was and is a rancher. So both men lived in Washington State, uh, and it's often believed that Patterson and Gimlin were in Northern California on a camping vacation. In contrast, the men were visiting the region as part of an expedition to find Bigfoot. Both men had already conducted searches in Washington and Oregon, and both men were Bigfoot believers. In particular, Patterson had been a highly active Bigfoot hunter for several years, and had self-published a book about the subject the year before the encounter. So I don't know the name of the book. Do you guys know the name of his book? Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? By the afternoon of October 20, Patterson and Gimlin had already been in the Bluff Creek area for seven unremarkable days, but I've come across other sources that claim they were there for three weeks. Uh, So the accounts continue to reveal inconsistencies, but what follows is a popular version of the events. Armed with hunting rifles and equipped with a rented 16mm movie camera, the two men were out horse riding in the afternoon. At around 1.30pm or 3.30pm, the men noticed a horrid stench in the air and their horses became skittish, just before they came upon a hairy, hominoid-like creature in the distance. Patterson's horse was startled and threw him to the ground. He still had the wherewithal to grab the camera and start filming. He ran towards the creature 
reaching a distance of about 80 feet away, while Gimlin stayed on his horse and stood guard with his weapon. Patterson took 24 feet of colour film, featuring the apparent female creature striding across the creek's sandbar. At one point, it turns around and looks at the men momentarily, then continues walking into the forest. The men continued to track the creature for three miles until they lost sight of it into the dense forest. The men returned to the site of the encounter and made two plaster casts of the footprints the creature had left behind in the banks of the creek. These casts measure about 14.5 inches long by 6 inches wide. However, this supposed evidence is overshadowed by the film. This blurry, shaky, grainy footage is held up as, quote, the most most convincing evidence of Bigfoot. Uh, although admittedly the source for this quote is from In Search Of, but this is a popular belief. So believers tend to claim that the Patterson-Gimlin film has never been discredited, while sceptics tend to remind us that it's never been authenticated. And folklorically, this iconic film is perceived as proof of the existence of Bigfoot. There's a lot of other films of Bigfoot, but it's the only one that I think is... It's certainly the best known in the original. I mean, yeah, I was trying to think of the right adjective. It's 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 certainly the one that set off the Bigfoot craze, and it's still the one that gets the most uh, attention in the media and from believers. And there's a sort of anecdotal uh, description that you'll hear over and over again in Bigfoot fandom, uh, which is that next to the Kennedy assassination, the Patterson Gimlin film is the most viewed film of all time. The Zapruder film. Exactly. I don't know if they mean this Zapruder film. I've never heard well, the quote. They've got you. I, I don't. I, there's no other. There's no other famous film that the Kennedys has named. Well, <laughs> it's certainly been scrutinized, like the Zapruder film. Just for example, the James Randi Educational Boards have had a, a Bigfoot thread just on the Patterson Gimlin subject that, that spanned multiple years and had almost five hundred thousand page views. That's mm. that's one of multiple threads. I mean, it is a really scrutinized piece of film. Even now, um, the TV show Monster Quest just recently reanalyzed the film. And I think they tried to get back to the original film site and do some measurements with Bill Munns. Uh, and that created uh, a whole new wave of controversy about the film. Um, well, so. well, one thing that I found interesting uh, when I was, when I was uh, giving a talk at a Bigfoot conference a couple years back in Idaho was I had been invited to this conference as sort of, of course, the token skeptic, and um, I was also interested to see what new evidence they had. I mean, it, it had been a while since I had been involved with the, the Bigfoot buffs, and I was somewhat surprised to find that they were still flogging this 1967 film. I, I went to the conference expecting to see, here's the new great film, and you know, here's, the, here's all this new hot new evidence. It was just reanalyzing and rehashing and rehashing the Gimlin film from 67, and I, I found that very telling that... After 40 years, they were still flogging that thing, and they couldn't point to anything better. It's a good point. I think as far as Bigfoot evidence goes, the Patterson-Gimlin film and the footprints are the main two pieces of evidence because they're the hardest to refute, although they're the easiest to duplicate in one sense. And I think some people's heads probably just exploded if this makes it to air. Because uh, believers say no one's ever duplicated the Patterson-Gimlin film the suit, the walk, uh, and lots of other aspects. I I personally used to find it a a horrifying piece of film, 
uh, just very, very scary and frightening. The idea that there were giant apes was very frightening to me, especially when I was a child. In recent times, technology's caught up with the film quite a bit, and of course I've seen it lots and lots of times. The stabilized version of the film, while the people who stabilized it think it provides better evidence that the creature is an animal, to me, it makes the creature look like a man in a suit. Uh, I, I found it much less controversial when it wasn't shaky and blurry and it was just walking across the screen. To me, it looked like a guy in a suit. And of course, um, a man has come forward, or actually multiple people, but Bob Hieronymus has come forward most recently uh, claiming to be the guy who wore the suit. And Greg Long, the authors, tracked down a lot of evidence to support that. I was going to ask about this um, Bob Hieronymus. Um, is, wasn't he a neighbor of Gimlin's? Yeah, that's interesting. They're, they're friends from the same town, um, and there's some photos out there that show uh, several of them working together. Because my understanding was that, and maybe Ben uh, could correct me here if I'm wrong, but the group of them were planning to make a movie about Bigfoot. That's and, my understanding, yes. Yeah, and, and I've seen some photos of them um, and with one of the characters wearing a long, it looks like a wig, appearing to try to be an Indian tracker for the film. I might be misinterpreting that. The idea that a man would be, I'm going to go make a movie about Bigfoot, and then, no, 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 I'm going to make a documentary about me hunting Bigfoot, and then the first time I go out and try, coincidentally, I find Bigfoot, and then nobody else finds Bigfoot again. After many weeks. After many, 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 many weeks, months, years. <laughs> I think you're being a little skeptical there. It, it's true. But I think it um, coincides with his with, with himself publishing this book as well. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Many people have noted that the uh, there were illustrations in his, his book uh, that looked remarkably similar to the way the creature came out to be in the film so either he was very prescient in his guesses about what the creature would look like and a lot of that apparently was tied to uh, his study of the abominable snowman and the work of ivan sanderson also the breast as i recall was the main distinguishing feature that everybody was thought was so impressive if it was a hoax which i think it was uh, it was a clever idea to make it into a female because people wouldn't expect that they would you know bigfoot oh, i think uh, is, a, is a is a male idea are we talking about the, the pendulous breasts that I keep reading about? <laughs> they were quite pendulous. If that's what they were. If they were breasts. The thing about the film, this is what I find really interesting. Watching it on television is a very different experience than seeing it uh, in, at its original scale. It's usually zoomed in uh, <laughs> in, in the television version. And the, it, it, if it's shot, it's, when you see it in scale, right, the way it was originally shot... Bigfoot's like center for a lot of the the filming. He's trying to keep it center frame, mm. uh, but it's very very tiny. So what happens is when you zoom in, when you enlarge it to make the picture more obviously focused on Bigfoot instead of all the nature around him, there's a lot of blurs, and you can interpret those blurs in a lot of different ways. People see details, muscles moving, all kinds of things. No zipper. You can't see the zipper. Well, I'm not surprised you, you know, that you can't see the zipper in a Bigfoot suit 100 right. feet away filmed uh, on, a, on this little camera. It's, it's, mm. but, but people think that's such a big deal. I can see this detail. I can see that detail. And I, I've heard it multiple times described as the Rorschach test of whether you believe in Bigfoot or not. You, know, you can see lots of things. And, and those nuances, how could this be faked? Well, I can't even be sure that it's a real detail, so how could it be proven to be a real detail? I don't know. That's very strange. That was one thing that really jumped out at me. 
could watch three different presentations on the exact same film, and three different people would pick out wildly different, sometimes contradicting details, uh, talking about, well, you know, as you can see here, clearly, you know, Bigfoot's left eye is green. Like, what the hell are you talking right. about? You know? I guess this makes uh, these interpretations, really, just makes it more subjective. But just one thing I wanted to comment on, I've just spent the last couple of days researching Bigfoot and and the Patterson-Gimlin film and um, the various stories, and it just makes for very daunting work. There is so much information out there, and uh, having to sift through this material and to discover what is good and what is bad is uh, just really mind-boggling stuff. That's certainly true. It's remarkable that a piece of film that a minute long, and give or take, has engendered such a debate and such a, a wide variety of interpretations, dogmatic skepticism and dogmatic believing, and it's, uh, it's amazing. Monster Dog. Anatomy of a Beast has a lot of characters in it. Real men who made the world of cryptozoology what it is today. We'll put information on these people in our show notes, but here's a brief overview of the men behind the legend. Charles Fort, the man for whom Fortean Phenomena is named. He chronicled the bazaar and scoffed at science, and lo, there was much rejoicing. Ivan T. Sanderson, a naturalist and adventure writer who became obsessed with the unknown and the mysterious. His descriptions of the Yeti profoundly influenced the young Roger Patterson. Bernard Huvelmans, a Belgian-French explorer often regarded as the father of cryptozoology. Roger Patterson, the rancher and entrepreneur who shot the famous Patterson-Gimlin film. Bob Gimlin, Patterson's friend and fellow Bigfoot enthusiast. He was there when the film was shot. René de Hinden, a Swiss immigrant to Canada who spent much of his life searching for Bigfoot. John Green, a Canadian newspaper man who joined de Hinden in the search and wrote about it. Peter Byrne, a Brit who hunted for the Yeti in India before coming to the U.S. to join the search for Bigfoot. Jerry Crew the logger whose camp was plagued by giant footprints. Ray Wallace, the local man who said he was the original footprint hoaxer at the Jerry Crew site. Tom Slick, a wealthy Texas oil man who funded searches for the Yeti and for Bigfoot until his death in an air crash. Greg Long, the author of The Making of Bigfoot, who says that a man named Bob Hieronymus wore the suit and that the suit itself was provided by costume maker Philip Morris, and then later modified by Patterson before the shoot. Well, tonight we're talking with Mike McLeod, who is the author of a new book called Anatomy of a Beast, Obsession and Myth on the Trail of Bigfoot. Now, you, you come from a documentary background, right? What, what kind of uh, documentaries have you produced? Well, uh, a lot of grim stuff. You know, I did a lot of... Uh, 60-minute, 90-minute long shows for Frontline and, and various other programs for for uh, Discovery and PBS, aside from Frontline. Sorry, how did you develop an interest in Bigfoot then, uh, given the background that you have? Well, I grew up in Bigfoot country. I grew up in uh, Eugene, Oregon, so that was right smack dab in the middle of Bigfoot country. Uh, and as it turned out, I think I really became interested in it later in life, you know, after I became a journalist, to really find out, uh, you know, that film, of Roger Patterson's played so often on played so often on TV that that kind of led at one point in my life to just wanting to you know I say to myself well 
I'd never heard that that had been disproved, and it just seemed to me something that, as a journalist, it would be interesting to know, you know, what was behind it, because I didn't believe, I didn't believe in the animal, but uh, the film was certainly, I think, impressive, and uh, so I think it was just, you know, the curiosity to to put my uh, my background in terms of interviewing people and trying to go to original sources, and, and just to try to find out how close I could come to answering uh, how that film came to be. Well, I have to say I really like the results. This has been uh, an enlightening book to me as a long-time uh, interested party uh, to see someone tie together a narrative to join these sort of individual characters together in a way and explain how they were interrelated uh, that I have never seen before. So that was nice. Uh, That's what uh, You know, honestly, that was really what I was trying to do was tell a story. I wasn't trying to... Uh, I wasn't trying to investigate Bigfoot. I, I was really trying to tell the story of the film, and in so doing, it just ended up being a story of this small group of disparate guys, you know, who, who were really hooked on trying to find it. Just echoing what Blake said is that uh, that I found most interesting was that you know I, there were all these characters who I had actually read, I actually knew a fair amount about many of them, but I it was never really clear to me exactly how they related to each other and. And you know how it all came about. So uh, definitely, definitely painted a, an accurate and oftentimes uh, somewhat unflattering picture of, <laughs> of some of the uh, early uh, early folks. I mean, you know, for example, you describe the the, the Patterson film as, as as basically sort of a pious frauds. You know, sort of a, a hoax committed by a person who really, ultimately, genuinely, sincerely believes in it, but. You can't you can't get the real thing, so you fake it. I mean that that was sort of the impression I got. So, do you think that's the case with a lot of Bigfoot hoaxes, or what, what do you think is the the motivation? Gee, I don't know. I mean, what would be the motivation? I, I think, uh, you know, I honestly think Roger's motivation was he needed money. I mean, he was really on one level, from all the information I have, he was a, a genius. Actually, on more than one level, you know, he was he could he was an inventor and he had interesting ideas and and uh, and, and he was an artist and. Uh, he had an eye for things, and uh, I think, he, but he was always from one job to the next. He was always working for himself, and I was always, as I say in the book, he was an inventor and, and always trying to make, you know, looking for that one big score. And that, coupled with the fact that he was sick, uh, I think really drove him to, to do this. And, and, you know, he wasn't the first person to shoot a film of Bigfoot. Uh, Ray Wallace did that, and I've seen that footage, and you may have too. Uh, you know, and it's not against the law, and many people since have done the same thing, so it didn't create any egregious breach of the law or anything like that. But, you know, as to what would motivate people to, you know, to, to shoot other films of Bigfoot, you know, it's it's awfully strange. I remember I interviewed Ivan Marks shortly before he died, and, and he shot at least one film of Bigfoot. He might have shot a couple. Uh, actually, he did shoot two. In fact, I talk about those in the book. He did shoot two. He tried to sell me <laughs> a videotape of one of them. Well, of course he did. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I think it's just to be, you know, it's a quirky thing. And uh, I think, uh, you know, nobody's ever seen the thing. So if you could pull it off well enough, I think that's one of the reason, reasons Patterson's film works so well is nobody's ever seen one, right? So, mm -hmm. so whatever you come up with in your mind that might be the creature... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, the more accurate you might seem to be to more people, the, you know, perhaps the film would, would, uh, you know, catch their fancy. And in Patterson's, uh, instance, it really did. 
Oh, I think so. Uh, so there was, a, I guess, the first craze of Bigfoot uh, in the public eye was the Wallace tracks or the crew tracks. But were all of those original Jerry Crew tracks perpetrated by Wallace and his friends? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, in the instance, ironic that uh, not long ago I, I a woman showed up at uh, one of my book signings and uh, and her husband was uh, Wallace's accountant. He did all the, you know, he filled out all the timesheets and stuff for all the logging crews and that sort of thing. And it's well known in Willow Creek at the time that Ray Wallace was the guy that did it. And uh, there were the three Wallace brothers, but Ray and his brother Shorty were complete jokesters. And they had a couple friends uh, named the Buzzwells. And apparently the Wallaces and the Buzzwells were just the talk of the town because they were always pulling jokes on people. And it was anything for a laugh. According to her, the Wallaces started the whole thing because they were having problems on their job sites with people pilfering things, and uh, and they were afraid for insurance reasons and equipment getting stolen and broken and that sort of thing. That they were just they would do this. They'd leave these footprints, and they would uh, they would talk up this thing as a means of keeping people away from the job sites. You know, that's as close I guess as you can come without <laughs> without somebody actually who was in on the deal saying, uh, you know, how come it came about. And she claimed that the feet were done. They did them using uh, one of their, she you said she called it a cat. Uh, I don't know if it was a caterpillar or some other piece of uh, hydraulic uh, logging machinery in which they put these feet on a, uh, a wheel-like device. And they spaced them far enough apart so that they, and there was enough pressure and weight on the device that uh, they could leave long strides and the imprints would be deep in the dirt. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've, I've worked on a logging crew briefly myself, so I imagine somebody who was, that was their life, and they, were, they knew how to operate big machinery and fix things and weld things. Uh, you know, it sounds plausible. So, But it was interesting to chat with her because she, uh, she seemed to have the lowdown. And <laughs> as close as you can get all these years later, you know. You had described... Uh, some of the tracks being in what would appear to have been inaccessible places, but that you think with logging experience and equipment, you could pull off those those feats without too much trouble. Uh, well, I think it would be a lot of trouble. Well, I, mean, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 but you could definitely do it. Yeah, but and, the payoff and... is big if you <laughs> if you're a joker. <laughs> and apparently, her husband, after the uh, the tracks became publicized. In Willow Creek, uh, apparently all the kids at the local school were just terrified to death of the woods. And, you know, it's a small place, and mostly everybody lives basically in the woods. And she said uh, it was to the point that her husband went to Ray and told him to knock it off because he's scaring every kid in town to death. And shortly thereafter, you know, it all ceased. So anyway, it was, it was another insight that she had, so. Well, thanks for sharing that. That I mean, yeah. that, that's good information. Even if it's anecdotal, it's interesting to get some more insight into what may have been going on. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah. In, in your book, I don't want to spoil the book for anyone, but you do a nice job of introducing not just Bigfoot, but the whole field of cryptozoology through your profile of Ivan T. Sanderson. And um, it was interesting to get, a, I've got some of Sanderson's books, but to get your point of view on that. In your reading, did you come across any instances where he came out and 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 admitted some of the hoaxes that fooled him? Like the giant penguin, that what is it, the Bayhead monster, and then the Minnesota Iceman. Did he ever acknowledge being duped in those cases? Well, I never found any indication of it. Uh, do you think he genuinely had become a believer in all these odd things, or do you think he had become financially dependent on them? You know, it could be a combination of both. You know, you get invested in something, and you, you start to believe things differently. Uh, you just put out, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, again, he wasn't doing anything illegal, so... Yeah. You know, you, you put these things out of your mind, I think it becomes perhaps easier to... You become known for a certain slant on things, and that becomes that becomes the mainstream way you support yourself. Uh, he had some pretty outlandish ideas. I mean, the, the articles he wrote for Argosy uh, later in his life, when he was the science editor of Argosy, were just completely... You know, he was grasping at straws. He was, he was doing odd articles about... Uh, uh, like, who was the guy that came up with the pyramids from space, or I don't know, Ron Donegan. Like yep. Ron Donegan. You know, he was doing that kind of stuff, and 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 looking for evidence of sea monsters still, and and you know all this stuff. And of course, he'd report it, and they'd, they'd put it in the magazine. Sometimes it'd be a cover story, but there was nothing to it. And of course, there was no follow-up. So, you know, and I, you know, he was it's sort of the heyday of that stuff. You know, the the fifties, sixties, and seventies. There was a lot of this. Well, it really started, you know, it really started with the flying saucers back in the late 40s. But, but it sort of, there was kind of, there was a, there was a steady arc upwards of, of this amount of this information that was getting out there. And Sanderson just rode this wave. And he was on TV, you know, uh, mostly as a legitimate guy, you know, on the Gary Moore show. And, uh, but then later in the, in the, in the late 50s, he started to, when he got into True Magazine, that's when he started, the curve started to flatten out in terms of his grasp of reality. And and he really saw that there was a there was a market for this pseudo scientific kind of stuff, right? I that's why I, I you know I basically sold the book on the idea that he was the guy who was the you know he was the modern he was the first guy to really to really uh, perfect the art of pseudoscience because he was a scientist and he knew how to write and he he'd done it straight although his, his scientific writings after he got out of school were were not really scientific they were more travel logs but but he learned. He had the science speak, and he had enough knowledge about how 
scientists talk and the terms they use, that he could then take some of his wild dreams and he could he could infuse them with his scientific way of speaking and promote himself as a scientist, uh, you know, offering himself on these one thing, these odd things, and uh, it, there became a market for that. And there really nobody done it. I mean, there had been a few people that had done it before, a book here, a book there, but he was the first guy to really turn it into a uh, a means of making a living. You would also talked a little bit about uh, his sort of inspiration, Charles Fort being another character who just sort of loved to poke fun at science and just come up with any wild theories and speculations uh, which may or may not have a grain of scientific truth to them. Yeah, absolutely. you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, he was a real Fortean. I mean, he really... he. For all the rest of his life, that he was a committed Fortean, and uh, and he really I, something happened. Something happened to him when he was just out of school and dealing with while he was doing his animal collecting, and, and he got on the wrong side of some scientists there in Britain. And uh, and uh, I remember his his old associate Schoenberger told me that he what had really turned the corner for him is he he'd presented a snake or some kind of reptile to the to the scientists that he'd found, and and he told them that it had emitted light. You know, like fluorescent light, and they wouldn't hear of it. And he also told them that he'd seen uh, flying snakes, and he, he knew that they, and, which is there are flying snakes. I mean, they they glide from the trees. You know what I mean? They right, right, trees, right. Anyway, but when he would talk about these things, the, the scientists in the labs back in Britain would just ridicule him. You know, he was all Ivan. You know, whatever with his wild ideas, and he just got turned off by it. I mean, really, like. Like Fort, you know, was turned off by science. And a lot of people today are turned off by science. I mean, we see that all around us. And I think he really took that to heart. And so if the scientists, if science was behind it, he wanted to go the other way. So, and I, you know, I always think that's really what drove him to do a lot of what he did was to, because there was a market to do that, because there were a lot of people that really enjoy hearing about uh, science being wrong or misspoken or, you know, whatever. Uh, I was going to ask you, you say that the Bigfoot phenomenon has never been about the truth, it's about storytelling. So what would you say is the significance of Bigfoot storytelling in our culture today? Why is it an important uh, story? I'm still wrestling with that. I, I, uh, I, why Bigfoot is so wildly popular, uh, it seems even increasingly so to some degree. Uh, it's a real mystery to me. Uh, I mean, it's because it's kind of like the ultimate hobby for a number of people I've met. And... Uh, there's you know endlessly endless speculation about it and and, and so forth but uh there, you know it's i don't know it's really weird i tried to write about it in my book i had this in the first few drafts i had some really long sections i did a lot of research about the brain and how it works and why people believe one thing or another i finally realized i said you know i can't you know uh real people that study the brain can't explain it they can write books about it, but they don't really explain it. So I ended up cutting most of it out and uh, and, and trying to try to focus on what I thought was Roger Patterson's state of mind in, in terms of uh, you know how people under duress mentally how they how they deal with their situation. You know why people uh, get a hold of a belief like this and uh, and just can't let go is is it's a real good question. I came across one uh, review on Amazon.com and a reader said, while the book clearly discounts the existence of Bigfoot, it certainly had me wanting to believe, not just in the legend, but in the people who pursued that legend. <laughs> so really hold on to these beliefs, even if they don't believe them. Yeah, well, I, I think it's fascinating people, 
I mean, you know, it's really fascinating. I mean, I, I obviously you all you three are interested in the subject. Sure. <laughs> so why why are you interested in it? <laughs> do you well, believe it exists, or do you or do you kind of maybe would like it to exist, or? I don't want to speak for the other two, but we're all skeptics. So we, we, yeah. So yeah. So we're we're all really skeptical skeptics. We're the skepticalists, <laughs> not just token skeptics. We're like organized skeptics. But uh, you know the the uh, the whole the idea you're talking about studying why people believe things. That's I I don't know about Karen and Ben. Well, yeah, I do. Of course, we all study that. That's that's exactly what we're interested in. The, the purpose of our show is because so many people are interested in monsters and aren't that interested in critical thinking. We want this show to be a gateway to let people take their crazy beliefs and re-examine them under the scrutiny of science, the scientific method, and rationalism. Well, I applaud that. I applaud that. Thanks. It's, uh, it, it's, long, it's long overdue. I, I mean, uh, I, in fact, I said in the book... It, one point, I said, you know, if people are will- believe in Bigfoot, what on earth do they believe about things that are really important? Right. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ultimately, you know, I, I had this belief when I started, this hope when I started the book that that one of the main things I, could, I might accomplish was to convince some people to re-examine it, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll tell you, some of the comments I've got about the book and, 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 and a number of comments of people I hadn't even read it, but are ardent Bigfooters, obviously, there's no way you're going to turn them around. Uh, they just it reinforces when they when somebody uh, comes up with a you know tries to be a, hold a rational discussion or write rationally about it. Uh, it it's absolutely a turnoff to these people. So it's, it's interesting. I, I don't I don't know why that is. Without actually answering the question, I can tell you this much. I talked to Stephen Novella, who's a neuroscientist or neurologist at Yale. And he has a podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which is a, a really good show if you ever get a chance to listen oh, to okay. it. And, um, but he talks about um, – it, it actually turns out that the way we store facts is different than the way we store beliefs in our brain. So even if someone demonstrates to you rationally that something that you believe is not a fact, it's really hard to let go of that, not just at a – uh, from the meta idea of how you think, but literally, physiologically, it may be hard to let go of that belief. So it, it may go that deep. That's what evidence seems to be pointing towards. Yeah, I, one of the uh, the, the uh, points that a fellow made today that was interviewed, the, the scientist uh, said that he, uh, one thing about memory is that it was, uh, you know, it's it's not hardwired. I mean, it doesn't implant itself and not change, that it's overwritten all the time. And, uh, and of course, because we are predisposed to want to accept more easily information that we agree with, it's generally overwritten with stuff that we agree with. And the other thing is that uh, one way we establish what's a fact and what's not is we is by remembering where you got the information from. But that oftentimes, as we as we grow older and experiences overlap, we forget where the information came from. So we don't have we don't know we don't we can't go to that. In, in other words. The information is there, but we and so we assume it's true because we've forgotten we've forgotten the origin of the information. And of course, the origin of the information is is important to the credibility. I mean, did, did I read Absolutely. that in a scientific book, or did I read that from? Did I hear that from my cousin? You know. Well, you know, that's the reason when I when I did this book. I mean, that was the whole thing. I don't knew nobody had ever done that. I mean, all the books that have been written about this regurgitate the old stories, right? And they regurgitate and they and they relate 
tales that people tell of having seen one or, or having found footprints or this, that, or the other thing. Nobody ever went to the source. You know, they very seldom go to the source to find out, you know, who said that and why and what were the circumstances. I mean, that's basic journalism. And, and that's really what I wanted to do with this story. Was Speaking on the idea of uh, going back to old sources, you talked about the Yeti, which, of course, the Yeti uh, is a precursor to the American Bigfoot legend, or at least the popularity of it. And you did a great job of talking about the the convergence between the efforts to climb Everest and the efforts to find the Yeti. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Well, my line of investigation was 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 to find out, you know, were these stories true? Where did the stories come from? And of course, and they all start with Lieutenant Bury, the Englishman back in 1921, who you know relayed a, a message from from some some mountaineers who'd seen these things at a great distance, and it got the message got garbled. They end up being identified as abominable snowmen. So that's where it starts in essence. But it became obvious to me early on that that wasn't something that uh, a person of Nepalese extraction was telling the Western world. You know, that it was all the Yeti was a fabrication of, of uh, English newspapers. And English newspapers were writing about that because people were interested in it. And, and they were writing about it because they were being given the information by mountaineers. So you start looking into the mountaineers of the time and, and uh, and the efforts to climb Everest, which were were very important. They were very nationalistic. In other words, there was any anybody that could climb Everest was really elevated that nation in the eyes of the world. And and the Brits wanted to do that. And uh, and the Brits weren't the only country. There were you know there were a dozen other countries that were trying to do the same thing, to climb the same mountain. And uh, of course, those expeditions got very expensive very early and and the way they used to run those expeditions as you all know <laughs> hundreds of people you know uh, a dozen or a couple dozen principals and then a couple hundred porters and what a way to search for an animal right <laughs> right uh and i mean even if the search for the animal was wasn't primary on your list i mean what kind of animal is going to hang around with that kind of human presence right i mean it just it's just absurd and so it became it became obvious. In fact, I found this in various written accounts and that sort of thing that the that the, the cost of these expeditions, the, the major way they they paid for them was to write uh, dispatches from the mountain. That was the primary way they got their money and uh, and memoirs afterwards. And so nothing sells better. You got to have some drama. I mean, uh, it's, it's one thing to write about how beautiful the mountain is, but. Uh, that doesn't that pales in comparison to writing about maybe having seen some mysterious creature. We have a question from listener Carl Rose about Rene de Hinden. He asks During your interview with Rene, did you detect or suspect any psychological undercurrents that may have more greatly influenced his involvement in the Bigfoot soap opera than a simple need to find the beast first? I found Rene to be a, a real enigma. I found him to be totally rational in terms of uh, uh, talking about, uh, you know, the, quote, evidence that had been found to date. And uh, and I never heard him say, and I've never heard anybody who talked to him say, that he absolutely believed, that he absolutely believed in the film or that he absolutely believed in Bigfoot. In fact, I've talked to a number of people who said in his later years he he expressed quite a few doubts. But at the same time, he was on the trail for years and years and years. So I don't know. I, 
he wasn't the, the the gentleman I met in uh just not long before he died was really an engaging character uh but I don't think he was the Rene of old I think that all the reports I get of Rene in his uh you know from in the 60s and the 70s uh he was really irascible and really a different kind of guy uh I mean blunt spoken to the to the point of, of the total totally being obnoxious and and uh, the sort of person he just wouldn't want to be around, and I, that, so many people told me that. But on the other hand, they always told me there was this this quality to him, which I discovered, which made him really, really likable. But uh, that question that that gentleman posed, who, who wrote that letter, I don't know how to answer that because it does seem to be two different uh, points of view, from the same person. You know, he, he stayed after this thing and and kept it in his mind that. If I can't disprove the Patterson film, then it must be true. You know, it's a point of view I just don't, I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> I find that a, a really, really a strange observation. Well, he was very vested by the end, <laughs> would you say? I mean, he'd already spent a lot of his life and a lot of his money looking for Bigfoot. It'd be hard to let go at that point. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we said, we were talking earlier that you know, people who invest themselves in something after a while, it becomes, you know, that's who they are. Uh, you know, like um, Bob Gimlin. I mean, I, you know, Gimlin is absolutely as, about as straight a shooter as, as I could imagine that, talking to anybody and getting an impression, you know. But after after all these years of of searching or being involved one way or the other, uh, it it I don't know. It's <laughs> it's very strange. Well, okay, you you mentioned in the book. Uh, you're right, though. I, I've read people say, in fact, I just read some today where people were saying that, you know, Gimlin's a straight shooter, completely honest. Uh, you know, why would he lie? Why would he not come out and tell the truth now if he, if he had lied? And, and I think if you, if you have a reputation as being truthful, but you have this secret untruth, you know that you're going to destroy your reputation if you do come out with it. You talk a lot about the timeline for when the claim was made that they brought the film back, the Patterson-Gimlin film, back from the film site to take it to go and have it developed, and that there's just things that could not possibly be true. How damning would you say that evidence is about the inconsistencies, even the con- uh, contemporaneous reports? And uh, I, I consider it incontroversial. Uh it's, it's absolutely impossible to do what they claim they did that afternoon and uh, and show up in town in Willow Creek uh, at the time they claimed. And then the whole airport thing was never explained. And, oh, it's just, I mean, I've been there. I've traveled those roads. You know, in, with modern, the modern roads today, you can't make the trip in the time that they claim they made it. And and their versions of, the, of what happened changed, notably, from the very first interviews they gave. Uh, they, first of all, neither Gimlin or Patterson had completely the same story. They always vary, they varied a little bit. Their stories changed uh, over the months and over the years. I mean, drastically changed, and, and to the point that at one point, Gimlin even, you know, told somebody in an interview that they didn't even get out of camp until dark to get to Willow Creek. And I know they were in Willow Creek that day because I, you know, Al Hodson told me that. Two other people I interviewed uh, in Willow Creek uh, were there that day. Those were t- those were town locals, right? Yeah. Right. So we know he showed up that day in Willow Creek, and we know it was around 4 in the afternoon. Uh, and he said he had film with him that he was taking to be processed. So that's the only thing that anyone knows for sure, other than Gimlin and Patterson. All the rest is their story, which changed. All the stuff they claim to have done, I mean, uh, 
after the encounter, which they claimed happened sometime around 1.30 in the afternoon, uh, a lot happened. They had to pick a pack horse that had broken loose. So according to their story, they had to go retrieve the pack horse. Then they had to go all the way back to camp, which, depending on which version of their story that you read, it, uh, the camp was two to three, perhaps even four miles away from the from the site of where the filming was done. So they had to go back to camp, and they had to they didn't have the plaster with them to cast the footprint apparently. So they had to catch the horse. They had to go back to camp and get the plaster for the foot to make the footprints. Go all the way back to the to the creek, and uh, and Patterson also shot footage of the tracks, which which was uh, has been seen by some people but disappeared not long afterwards. Shot footage of, uh, of the tracks and walking the horses along the tracks to compare the two imprints. And then they cast, uh, they cast one or more of the tracks. And then they had to go all the way back to the car, to the truck, and then they had to lo- load the horses. And the, the plaster had to set, dry, load the horses, put the horses in the truck, and then drive all the way the two hours or whatever it took in those days to get to, to Willow Creek. So it just didn't, the timeline didn't add up. So to me, the, the timeline plus uh, the fact that their stories varied so often, uh, plus that piece of additional information in the last chapter, which I interviewed a fellow who spent time up there, not part, you know, by himself. He was on the job up there and, and didn't see anybody in the area. Uh, led me to, to believe that there's no way that that uh, that what they claimed happened, and, and of course, Greg Long's book that that, that proffers the idea that Bob Hieronymus was the guy who, in the suit. Hieronymus' the story that they shot the footage and then uh, and then had it developed, and a couple weeks later went back down there. Then that's when they made the tracks, and that's when they went into Willow Creek. The footage had been long ago developed, right? So they weren't on their way to send it anywhere for processing. There's no airplanes after 5 o'clock at, at, uh, you know, carrying cargo going out of the Eureka Airport in 1967. So nothing adds up. Unless the, unless the real story is that really it was already developed and they had just uh, decided this was the time to execute the tale. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was a, you know, I think that's and the plan fits. It's a perfect plan in terms of my sense of Roger the man. You know, Roger was a wily guy. He was he was no he was no dummy, and uh, and you know, it was a perfectly executed plan. If you, <laughs> I don't know, if you if, if you were, I mean, if you're going to do a hoax, would you want to? You'd want to shoot the film first to make sure it was turned out before you announced to the world you had it, right? Uh, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> what if you took it, you announced the world, you had it, you took it to the lab, and and there was something wrong with the footage, you know? I mean, you can I see mean the that zip- does happen, you know. Right, or you could see the zipper. I think that's what Ben said. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. so isn't, uh, isn't Gimlin now claiming that he could have been the victim of a hoax? I, you know, that's what I took away from my interview with Gimlin was that he, I, I don't know, has he, has he claimed that? I mean, he, he kind of left the door open to me when, when I interviewed him and I've heard him make the same claim to other people who've talked to him about it that, that the morning of the filming, uh, Roger slept in and he went out and ride by himself and, uh, he came back to camp later, which would have to be sometime, you know, mid morning, late morning and Roger wasn't in camp and then Roger strolled into camp saying he'd just been walking down the creek and then Roger suggested well why don't we get the pack horse and why don't we 
head on down the creek and stay instead of staying in camp tonight, we'll go camp somewhere else. And, you know, a complete departure from what they'd been doing for. And and Gimlin told me that they were down there for about three weeks, which is a long time. So you know, it's all very strange to me. It sounded like what Gimlin was saying was that he was leaving himself an out. You know, like maybe Roger had arranged this thing that but, morning, but, right? Yeah, but. And then, but he, he, <laughs> <laughs> Even in that case, it's not going to the the timeline still doesn't fit. I mean, whether if he's claiming that everything Roger and I said is true, except for the fact that I may have been hoaxed, well, hold on here. I mean, if for all the reasons you just said, the timeline still doesn't add up. Even if even if he might have been hoaxed, that's interesting. But I mean, you might consider the fact that if you were going to lie about it, that the creature was real, as, as Gimlin did. Uh, why might not you, at the same time, knowing that it wasn't true, leave yourself a, a back door? Right. It may not be the right, best back know, door, but, <laughs> but I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a fairly extraordinary. <laughs> it's a fairly extraordinary situation you put in psychologically. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's true. So, and and who would know it would turn into what it's turned into? Right? Could could these two cowboys down on that creek, whatever they were up to, it, it could possibly not have imagined what would happen all these years later with, with that. Have you heard this as being the most viewed film besides the Zapruder film? Uh, you know, I don't think I've heard that, but I mean, that's my own interpretation. I, I, uh, it's certainly shown more than the Zapruder film. Yeah, it's on I a mean, lot. it shows up all the time, every yeah. time, a couple times a year, regular clockwork. I was going to say, do you have any insight into what the financials are? I had heard something that it cost something like $6,000 to have the video included in a documentary or... I don't know, but that doesn't sound. Uh, too f- I heard I, a long time ago that uh, Mrs. Patterson was charging the five thousand, something like that range. I mean, you know, I changed it. Uh, there's film rights, and then there's there's television rights, and then there's all the internet stuff. So I don't know. Uh, you know, I have no idea what the what the going rate is today. But that I, I can imagine. I mean, I, I've dealt with a lot of stock footage in my time, and and it could get pretty spendy. I would say for five or six thousand bucks, that's not bad. At the same time, I'm sure she's getting ripped off a lot by people that are just using it or not. You know, people say, well, when Roger Patterson was dying on his deathbed, he still said the film was real. And why wouldn't he? If that was his best hope for making revenue for his family when he was gone, I mean, he has plenty of motivation to not say, it was a lie, you know, so. Yeah, right. I mean, that's people just assuming that somehow death, you know, impending death makes people tell the truth. People would say, why would he go to his deathbed and, and still claim the film was real, right? Well, why not? Does right, right. I mean, you're going to die I, shortly mean you're going to suddenly have to confess everything you've done in your life that wasn't on the up and up? Just, <laughs> I, ho- I hope that's not a requirement. I, don't <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Doing some research myself on Bigfoot and the Patterson-Gimlin film, there are just so many versions uh, of the story, so many accounts, and I'm just wondering how you decided to uh, to treat that. I made a decision early on that I was not going to get into the the back and forth who said what to who and and uh, re- and and regurgitate all these sightings and you know Bigfoot's been seen here this many times and seen there and there was the infamous story of this and whatever I I just decided not to get into that I I made a conscious decision to just do an investigative story like I do and just and not get into all these side things because there was there's no end to that. So I basically just went to the sources and, and tried to get everything from the original source and I took didn't I made a conscious effort not to burden my burden the story with with all this extraneous information none of which could be verified anyway. So 
You could really get bogged down in that. Yeah, real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I had a lot of that stuff. I had a lot of stuff in there, and I, I just decided one day, I said, you know, this is not reading like a story. This is, this is a, you know, it's trying to bolster what I'm trying to say with, with, uh, with documentation. And I said, you know, it's, it's more like a white paper. You know, what am I trying to prove here? And I, I, I think in a, I went through, and in a week I cut it from 120,000 words down to about 85,000. That was a huge, I just walloped everything off. And it ended up being a story, just like that. It just fell into place. So. Well, that's cool. I, I like it. It's a good, brisk read, and it has a lot of really good information in it. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been really interesting and enlightening. And, I, of course, we'll put a link to your book on our website. Uh, well, I appreciate that. That No, I, I really liked it. So I hope it does well for you. Thank um, you. Great. Well, it's always fun chatting about it. I'm sorry I get long-winded, but, uh, you know, there's, it's really fascinating. The characters are fascinating, and uh, I was just happy that I was able to find a story that almost wrote itself, you know? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I think we should be getting it to the right crowd. Hopefully this will help you. Uh, there's not enough good skeptical books about Bigfoot out there. Uh, so when are you going to do a good skeptical documentary? <laughs> well, you know, I tried to pitch this as a doc originally. That's why I decided to finally make a book out of it. Everybody wanted the woo-woo-woo kind of stuff, you know. They wanted to kind of show the beast walking through the woods. And, I mean, nobody wanted to believe that there was a real good, honest story in there about human beings. Uh, everybody saw it as a story about the creature, and I never did see it as a story about the creature. I saw it as a story of small group of guys who who just firmly believed in it and and uh they kept at it to the point that you know they made it a an icon and uh so i'm actually pitching it as a screenplay right now so hopefully oh uh, okay yeah you never know for, well thank you so much for your time well thank you for asking me to be on Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. You've been listening to a discussion of the Patterson-Gimlin film and the book Anatomy of a Beast with author Mike McLeod, along with your hosts, Blake Smith, Ben Radford, and Dr. Karen Stolls now. Music for today's episode was provided by Peach Stealing Monkeys, Freya, and Ben Bass. Monster Talk is the podcast companion to the website monsterscience.org, where you can find a variety of articles that skeptically examine monsters. Be sure to check out the monstertalk.org website, where you can find the show notes for this episode and links to science and skepticism resources. And that's when Karen passed out. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.